Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. You grew up in the Detroit area. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? I'm going to date myself. I'm going to say Gloria Vanderbilt jeans. (laughs) That is a date. (laughs) (laughs) That's before even Calvin Klein, I think. Yeah, I think you may be right. Yeah, yeah, I, I, know, think she, I know. She was the first. She was the first. I remember it, so come on. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm, I will date myself. But my mom was a kindergarten teacher. They had meager. I mean, I never thought I would ever get. I remember one Christmas. I had the jeans, the, the shirt. It was magical. I'll never forget it. <laughs> Sounds like a good Christmas. Yeah, it was. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years... I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Pam Forbes, the chief marketing officer of Pernod Ricard North America. The French company Pernod Ricard is the world's second largest wine and spirits company with global sales approaching $10 billion. Top brands include Absolute, Jameson, Kahlua, the Glenlivet, and Malibu, and a whole bunch more. My favorite is one of their more obscure brands, Bekarovka, an herbal Czech concoction I discovered when my family and I lived in Prague when I worked at P&G. Early in her career, my guest Pam spent 13 years at four different ad agencies before moving to the client side with PepsiCo and then the Walt Disney Studios. Pam has been CMO at Pernod Ricard for over two years, a period of high growth for the North American business. Interesting note, Pam met her current boss, CEO Ann Mukherjee, when they both worked at PepsiCo. Pam was not destined to be a CMO. She is the proud child of public school teachers. Her dad taught art. Pam nearly went to art school. This is my conversation with the woman whose childhood was spent in galleries and museums, Pam Forbes. So what will the brands of Pernod Ricard be offering us this fall that is enticing and interesting mm. as, the, as the weather gets chilly? Sure. Well, we've got a large portfolio. I work on 26 brands, but I think there's over 200, 200 in the U.S. and I think 400 globally. So it's a large portfolio. Um, I'm not a big whiskey drinker, but uh, we have a lovely um, American whiskey portfolio and our scotches and our Irish whiskey. So Jameson's come out with uh, Jameson Orange this this year that I think will be uh, we're still learning the, the wonderful drinks we can make there. Uh, right now, it's just ginger uh, ginger ale and Jameson orange is delicious. It also makes a good margarita, believe it or not. <laughs> Jameson does? Jameson orange. Oh, you just yeah. make it instead of tequila. Yeah. It, it tastes just like a margarita. So lots of versatility there. You're giving me all kinds of ideas. I am the family <laughs> mixologist, so I have, oh, to, be the, I have to be the innovator. <laughs> all right. Now, you are in one super fun and interesting category. And you seem to be, from all external signs, having the time of your life. So let's start with why does this category, this company, this culture click with you so much? 
<laughs> well, thank you for that. I um, hope I'm right there. I hope my assumption no, is right. I, I, I think it's a combination of where I am in my own personal journey mm-hmm. and career. It's not just the category, I don't think, although the category is fun. Uh, the lessons I've learned in the 30 plus years I've been, you know, working and it all kind of culminating and um, a real good magic between me and the CEO, frankly, and my head of sales. So I worked with Ann McCurgy before at, at PepsiCo. She knows me. I am in the blessed position of being a CMO who doesn't have to fight for the the right to, to for marketing to, to be. Yeah. <laughs> she believes in marketing. She's a brilliant marketer herself. So I just get to run as fast as I can, as hard as I can with my team to do great work. And then we, you know, the partnership with sales is something that's real. I'm learning more than I ever have. I mean, distribution is still the main driver of growth for our category and our brands, especially. And that partnership with sales is so important and it can be contentious, as you know. So working really hard to just rethink media to shelf consumer and shopper, how we're one team and only as one team can we compete. And so that's been really fun as a leadership challenge, but having a blast for sure. Well, I had a blast preparing for this podcast for a lot of reasons, but one was that you are full of great sound bites and really meaningful quotes. (laughs) So what, (laughs) what I'd like to do is start this podcast with a few of your quotes And then I'd like you to simply expound on them. Are you ready for this? Sure. (laughs) There are five of them, so we'll see how you do here. (laughs) Oh, no. The first one is, is, I love this one. We are not marketers at Pernod Ricard. We are market makers. Yeah. So as I just mentioned, the partnership with sales is so important. And I think there's this this big debate, especially in our category. Does marketing build brand Mm -hmm. or does marketing drive the business? Yep. And- I don't see it as either or. When you do really great marketing, you build the brand and you build the business. And you not just marketers, you're market makers. So uh, that means you're driving value to the market through brands, for sure, and making them more valuable, whether it's driving growth and volume or taking pricing, which a lot of us have to do right now and maintain that line. So it's a real mindset shift to what marketing is and does. It helps my marketing team think more about the business and it helps our sales team believe that our marketing is going to work. That's our marketing model. We call it the market maker model. It's also a great statement about how you think about performance and brand marketing. There's so many people Mm -hmm. talking about the tension there. There shouldn't be a tension. Brand should build business and performance should build brand. You know, we we need kind of the same KPI for both. Yes. Uh, you, you know, you can do bad work on both sides, upper funnel, lower funnel, however you want to call it. But I've seen great brand building, lower funnel work. I've seen great business building, upper funnel work. And that's, that's the bar. We're not going to s- strive for anything less. Next quote. Enjoy the journey. It's better than the destination. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did my research, didn't I? <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, um, I. It's funny. I've I've had many mentors and coaches in my life, and I think since I was very young, I've been striving for what's next. And at this point in my career, like as long as I've been in business, I look back and my the most magical moments, those dream team moments, were not about that promotion or the next thing. It was what we were doing in the moment to really make an impact. So um, I'm really focused on enjoying the journey. 
this is such a, a, a unique experience to have um, with such great leadership support around what we're trying to do in a exciting category, in an international category. I'm traveling internationally a ton, meeting amazing um, people who have been in the business a long time and uh, learning and growing and having an impact. It's just that that journey is really special. Say a few things about you've had a lot of experiences in your career where you've been part of a great dream team and you've mm-hmm. done remarkable things. Share a little bit about the characteristics of what's going on when that's happening. Because we'd all like that all the time, Yes, right? I know. I think, first of all, when I think about the most magical moments, there's usually a crisis. Hmm. Um, whether it's the 08 financial crisis, um, supply chain crisis right now, um, even even an internal crisis doesn't even have to be as big as a, as a recession. But that crisis will unite people. I think you get lazy in good times, right? And you don't really dig into what going on in the business. And when, you, when you're really pressure tested and you, you have to dig into all the unique parts of your business to unlock growth, the, you need a lot of diversity at the table. You need a partnership with finance. You need a partnership with supply chain. And you know, marketers today are those orchestrators of all the other functions to drive growth agenda. And you need analytics at the table. You need fact base at the table. And so all of that coming together, you can see things you hadn't seen before. And and you usually, I have found, you really have some accelerated growth personally and professionally. And it's, it's a good time. So never let a crisis go to waste. There's another quote. <laughs> it's been said before. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, the case for change is so important. People don't change behavior unless they believe in the case for change. And a crisis, it makes that very clear. That's right. It is easier. You're right. It's harder when things are going great. Yeah, it is. I've I've, I've, I've been there. I was at Disney when things were at the top of their game at the Disney movie studios. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was brought in to change some things. And that's hard to do. Don't mess with the magic. They're doing great, you know. But so it's a different kind of influence. And it's a little bit different. Again, I had a nice dream team experience there too, where I had to really leverage people who've been in the business a long time and use and kind of influence around the side versus, you know, aggressively from the front. And it, and we made some big changes. I thought changed how Rotten Tomatoes worked, frankly. I was really um, impressed. Yeah. So tips from you on time when when someone is in a situation where they do need to transform some things and things are going well, how do you go about that? Good question. I think clearly if you're needing to change something, something's not working. So what is that case for change? How do you articulate it in a way that might not offend someone who who thinks things are are going well? I use multiple multiple stakeholders. There's no one right way. It's it's creating that story and sharing it multiple times in multiple ways, leveraging stakeholders who get it and have them do the hard work because sometimes coming from you isn't going to do the right, be the right way. Having it come from someone else, who cares? Like it's, it's getting heard and it's getting actioned and then uh, come in. That would be uh, my experience anyway. Third quote, the role of the CMO is complex. Heck, modern marketing is complex. (laughs) Were you picking these up? But yes, <laughs> modern marketing is extremely complex, and uh, you need specialists in very um, specific areas, and nobody knows enough to do it all. So, 
my first year, we built a team of centers of excellence and my brand team has to work with them very closely. And that's very different skill sets. So you have technology and MarTech and data and audience building and you need experts in there who can work with those media agencies in a whole different level. If you don't, you're just going to get mediocre work. On the other side, you've got all of this culture, inclusive DE&I um, work that, you know, it's real easy to have a misstep in your creative. So have a whole team of experts who looks at everything we do from strategy to execution, um, as well as do a lot of, uh, I call it cultural IQ training for the whole team. And we've gotten really much, much better at it. And I'm so proud of that work. Can't do that and, and know every little nuance of every little cultural situation. More, you know, insights and analytics have always been in a, a center of excellence. Uh, but even, um, you know, shopper channel, You've got, you've got to all work together as a team to get that seamless media-to-shelf um, strategy for your brands. And it's too hard to be a generalist anymore. I, I, I find when you do, you just get mediocre vanilla work. So how many centers of excellence do you have, just roughly? Mm. Uh, so you have brand management. They're not brand marketers. We're all marketers. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> brand management, yeah. trade marketing or shopper marketing. We've got insights, analytics, uh, media and media technology, our in-house studio, which they have a, they have expertise on uh, dynamic content and have, you know, uh, they have to deeply know our brands. We've got, well, my finance partner is really important uh, as we architect the financial envelopes, which I can touch on in a minute. Um, am I missing somebody? No, it's good. It's a good sense. No, I get it. I get it. No, it's because those are very important choices, right? And your choices will be different from maybe another category, but it's a strong statement to say this is where we want to build capability. This is where yeah. we, want, we want to build competitive advantage. I, I looked into you know the the marketing model, the how what it was and where I thought we needed to go based on the path to purchase learnings we had, and a lot of our investment was not in media; it was in experiential touch points. So. COVID helped us right-size that, but we've maintained that spending in media. But a lot of it's digital. So a lot of it's susceptible to data, tech, you know, and I, that experience at Disney really helped there. I brought in the experts and even vendors that I had learned to really build a, a case for that. Um, but also seeing some really great cultural work done by some of our competitors and how we were doing it poorly. I had to bring in experts in culture, um, whether it's Asian, Black, or uh, urban. Um, and we, we really upped our game there. Fourth quote, if you say you are consumer-centric, you better be making decisions based on consumer data. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. kind of a simple one, but you know, we don't always do that. No, I think it's really um, easy to say we are a consumer-centric company. We value the consumer. We know the consumer. And, and that may be true. And that may be a real genuine statement. But when it comes down to it, are you actually making decisions based on the consumer data? And that's harder to do because, um, you know, you get you're working on a campaign and it doesn't test well or you're, it doesn't move the needle. Um, and you have data that tells you so. All We all have been in those situations where we kind of ignored the data and went with uh, what we thought was the right thing to do. Not because 
our gut was bad. It's just we felt it was right and it doesn't work. And you have to you have to make decisions based on all data is consumer data, even the transactional data. It's money out of a wallet. Right. So I do believe being consumer centric is being data centric. And I don't really see the the differences Mm -hmm. between them. How do you model that, Pam, as a leader? Mm, it's hard. I, especially, it was easy in my old role where I was an influencer, right? I just, I called myself the CMO whisperer. I would share the data. I would say, we really should be moving money from this brand to that brand or this campaign to that campaign. And it was really hard. It's emotional. You get attached to these campaigns. I'm very attached to a few that we're working on right now that are having some mediocre results, but we're making that hard decision to move money to a different brand until we get that creative better and stronger. So that's the right thing to do for the portfolio. The, The consumer is voting in multiple data points that it's just okay work and we're not, it's okay is not good enough. Last quote, it's career advice. Build your political savviness faster. Oh, yes. Um, I learned that too late in my career. Um, I was one of those who believed great work will uh, speak for itself and, you know, the promotions will come. I probably had the strongest impact, the best work in my career ever, and I was passed over for a big role. And it devastated me. And I... I didn't understand it. And I went to town to try to figure it out. I knew I had some sort of responsibility in that situation, but what else didn't I understand? And it was mid-career. It's pretty late in my career, frankly. And uh, after several coaches and management talks and HR talks, I figured out how much I had in my control that I didn't realize. And it's about being politically savvy. Um, It's a great book, High Integrity Politics. You know, you Mm -hmm. can be over political and under political. I was one of those that were under political and I, I needed to up my game. And that's hard work, changing and growing as a leader. (laughs) How did you come to terms with that? Because it's a lot of people think that's um, an ugly word, an ugly concept, a messy Mm. concept. But honestly, I agree with you. If you don't understand the room, the company, the dynamics, then you, you're naive to think that yep. you'll be able to move forward in that organization. So yep. it is a skill. I don't think it's something we should shy away from. How did you do it yourself? Yeah, it's a definitely a skill. It, it, two things happened at once. I, I had a leader who brought in some training on that mm-hmm. very topic. And we were, you know, insights and analytics and researchers tend to be very introverted, love the numbers, and here's here's the report, and we'll walk away. And this leader was trying to get us to move from researchers to strategic advisors, to like sit at the table and, and argue and debate. And that was really outside our comfort zone. And um, some took to it easier than others, and some just had to be given the permission, right? Like, I think I was one of those. I just need to be told that's your job. It's not, you know, and so we we did a workshop. At the same time, I got passed over for this job. So I was seeing it happen in real time where someone I thought less qualified got the role. But it wasn't about that. It was that they had worked, you know. Number one, no one knew I wanted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Wow, we didn't know you'd, you'd, you'd want that. Of course I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you can't, you know, people can't read your mind. Um, and then you have to, you have to, be the part. They have to see you in that part, right? So that's just one part of personal career politics. 
there's a lot of other, yeah. you know, politics in your work every day. And uh, it's not a dirty word. It's a fact of life. And it, you can be over political than that. You know, we know those people. Um, but I had to learn the hard way and I got a lot of support and coaching in it. So what would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. We're going to go into your CMO role now. We're already going into that to some extent. But this is your first big CMO role, and you have been in it about two years. And up to this role, your career, at least from what I see, has two big chapters, right? You started with about 13 years in advertising at a couple of different agencies, and then about 20 years on the client side in insights and analytics before moving into this. So that career path, it's a bit unusual, but it think is. about it. It's part storytelling <laughs> and part analytics, so it should be perfect prep for a CMO role. So my question is, did you feel when you came in to this role two years ago, did you feel, feel well-prepared for the job? I'll tell the story. I've told it many times when I was chatting with Anne about potentially looking at new options. Your CEO, Anne. Yeah. My CEO, Anne. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because Disney had, fur I had to furlough my team, wasn't sure if the movies were coming back and if they did, you know, how big. I was just uncertain. I started exploring new roles. Um, and I asked her to be a reference, and she told me no. <laughs> I was like, well, okay. And she's like, instead, I'd like you to come be my CMO. And at, my, at first blush, I thought she was joking. I said, no, no, no. You need an amazing CMO. Have you tried? And I gave her like five names. <laughs> and uh, she's like, no, no, Pam. I think you're perfect. I've given this a lot of thought, and let me tell you why. So she lists all the reasons, and she knows, and I trust her because she's a brilliant, award-winning you know, marketer. And um, I knew I, ha I had what it would take to, to do what needed to be done the first two years. I don't know if here I had what it, and here <laughs> we are, right? <laughs> the first two years is about laying the foundation, re redoing the brand strategies, redoing the growth model, all that stuff I had done in my sleep. I mean, and we did it in, in, on 26 brands. So I'm super excited, but I just had my review. Okay, it's time to go to the next chapter. This is the uncharted water for me that I'm actually really excited about. So um, this is about a growth agenda and um, being more front and forward storytelling with even the board, people in Paris, my cross-functional partners. This is not about my team. My team has to operate on its own now. So I have to empower them and they know the system. They're brilliant. Like they don't need me anymore either. So I have to get out of my comfort zone and uh, a new S curve in my leadership capabilities, which I'm excited to go on that journey. And uh, we will see, I guess. Well, you just <laughs> talked about what you're proud of in your first two years, and you're talking about this transition into your next two. If we got you back on the show, or if we just had a call in two years, what would you like us to be talking about? If I ask you that same question, what are you mm. proud of? for the two years that you're about to go through? Yeah, I think um, when you have this many brands, it's really hard to play favorites. You want everybody to get their share of the budget, to get their share of the attention, to get their share 
of effort, but you can't win that way. You're going to have to make tough choices at a portfolio level. And some brands deserve a bit more attention and more money than others if you're going to accelerate and grow market share. Uh, so those are tough, tough choices. And that's not something comfortable in a, in a company like ours. Very affiliative, very, our, our company culture is creators of conviviality, which means, you know, we all get along and we all, you know, um, we unlock the, the magic of human connection. That's how it translates. So when I have to say no and yes, and I need more here and less there, it's going to be a tough challenge, but I do believe we'll be successful and you will see that we have accelerated our market share growth. That's what I'm focused on. And what you're describing, you know, it's, it's an issue a lot of CMOs have who are in big multi-brand companies, which I was in. A challenge I think we all have is you'll get to you'll you'll do the right analysis to say these are the brands we're going to pick. These are the ones that we think we're going to ride and that have the most resonance with the most people. What about the people who work on the brands you don't pick? I know. How do you keep them feeling like they're developing, they're important, they have a role in the company? And they do have a role in the company and they do will get attention. It may be that they'll have a brand manager that they're sharing with another brand than their own dedicated brand manager. We will, we, we just have to make those tough choices. It's not an endless supply of resources. Mm-hmm. So I hope our internal studio gets better at creating content faster, quicker, bite size. So we, we will still have a, a source of, of publishing and media for them, but it's not going to be the big campaigns that they want, uh, so to speak. Well, we're also going to have to make tough choices in the U.S. about where we spend money, too. We spend a lot of money in sports sponsorships and music festivals. And, you know, not all of them have the right rate of return. And so we're going to have to dig into our own uh, budgets as well and make some tough choices. And again, the hard part is that selling that agenda to those who are excited about it and to those who are not excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're all stakeholders, we're all shareholders in the company, so it should make sense. But the U.S., is, it's a difficult, it's the biggest, when you're not a U.S.-based company, you're a Paris-based company, everybody's, U.S. is important to everybody, but not everybody's important to the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the tension, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I love Lillet. I hope Lillet takes off this summer. It's just a tough proposition for the U.S. consumer who has to be educated on how to serve that, right? So it's going to be a little bit longer of a, mm-hmm. a growth trajectory than maybe the Lillet brand team in Paris wants. <laughs> yeah. I want to follow a kind of train of thought you opened up there. Uh, and it's this idea of this, this, this area of being an outsider. You came in mm. two years ago as an outsider and... Your background is in insights and analytics and storytelling. So you took a fresh look at the category, and I've heard you speak about this in other venues. And you you had some observations. You know, there's lots of spending in events, as you just re- referenced, very low media spending, and some pretty strong preconceived notions about what drives brand choice. So I'd like you to speak a bit about those observations you had, and actually, more importantly, how it affected how you work and what your priorities were. Yeah, sure. Being an outsider is difficult. 
having the CEO sponsorship of the work was really important. That's number one. I think you need that top-down sponsorship of any kind of change initiative. So people, but I did find Pernod in the U.S. and beyond really open and very curious, which mattered to me. I've been in situations where people are closed-minded. That's that's the toughest situation. So they were really curious and open. We did a massive study path to purchase, choice drivers, what drives demand, understanding the category. And there was so much of what we shared and learned made common sense, but there was no way to articulate it. So nothing was really out of whack. I mean, even when you tell people, 50% of people who went to a bar or restaurant last night don't even know what brand they had. All they remember is they had a margarita. They don't remember the brand. So how can yeah. a bar build the brand if they don't even know what brand they add? Now, that's different. And if you go to a whiskey bar, of course. So it's always nuanced. So you can build brands in a bar, but not all brands and not all categories. So we got that kind of granular. And then we understood where does festivals and music you know, make sense and where does it not make sense? So we learned a lot. So we know if you're a low awareness brand, how to show up. If you're a high awareness brand, how to show up. And it's very different. So we architect the path to purchase touch points. And more importantly, we gave our the, the budget in envelopes in those touch points. So your strategy is only as good as how you spend the money against that strategy. So we kind of put them in handcuffs, so to speak. This is the amount of money you get for this touch point and this brand and go execute the play, media to shelf, very consistent creative and messaging all the way through. And that really, I think, right size, the path to purchase that some had seen as, hey, you're taking decisions away from me. I used to be entrepreneurial. I get to spend where I want to spend, right? No, we're, we're not taking decisions away. We're telling you where the consumer touch points are important and we're following the path of the consumer. The consumer's telling you where to put that money. So again, hmm. consumer centricity, following the data, right yeah. down to how we spend the money and where we spend the money. So everyone's seen, you know, we've only been a year into this and it's just now getting going and it's going great on some brands and tricky on others. So we're, I think, a year away from really fully um, experiencing it, but we've got launched new campaigns on most of the big brands and we're seeing the velocity changes. Now we're headed into some tough times, I think. Mm -hmm. Overlaps from COVID plus uh, inflation. Uh, we'll see how consumers react to pricing shifts in the category and we'll just watch it closely. That was a lot you just shared there, Pam. And I'd like to just go back to one concept, budgets and envelopes. What do you mean by that? Well, I think I've seen everything from, you know, the, the Jameson brand gets the brand budget and the Jameson brand team gets to decide how to, how to run that play. What I'm saying is, okay, this is how much we're going to spend on Jameson media. Media team, here's the Jameson budget. Brand team doesn't have that budget. The media team has that budget mm -hmm. for Jameson. Mm -hmm. um, same with e-commerce. So that was the other COE we built. <laughs> you know, here's the amount of money we're going to spend on Jameson e-commerce. Here's the amount of money we're going to spend in a experiential touch points. You get, you know, these festivals. That's it. Activate them. This is what we're going to spend in store. Um, sampling. So we know what matters to that brand yeah, in that path to purchase in that demand space. And we divide the money into those touch points and we have experts running those touch points. Of course, the brand management team has to orchestrate, make sure it all hangs and is responsible for the plan and, you know, monitoring execution and approving a lot of the execution, but they don't actually do the work. The 
brand management team doesn't really have a budget other than maybe some non-working dollars for creative. Yeah, got it. No, very, very, very powerful. You know, it, it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful example of what we talked about 10 minutes ago, and that is you're not consumer-centric if you're not making decisions based on consumer data. So it's, it's a beautiful hard. illustration. of It it's is hard. hard. But once you have it into place, then you start learning is what you're saying. Yeah. What have you learned in that in this process? What's been the most surprising insight as you came into this category and you began learning about where money is spent, what people are valued, what, what are the strong myths in the category about marketing? What was kind of the biggest aha you had? There's been a couple. So uh, the first one I've talked about before is how little was being spent in media. Mm-hmm. It was very much about field activation and, and experiential touch points. And that makes sense. You actually sell alcohol at these places and you want your brands to show up at these places. It's just the ROI analysis never made real sense about how much you were selling and what you were getting. So you had to believe there was a piece of brand building in there. But the brand building was limited to the scope of that activation. Think Even Coachella, like Absolute was a sponsor of Coachella for 10 years. Did anyone know it? No, I didn't know. Only people who went, went to that little tent, saw that little activation, even knew, knew it. So this year we tried to figure out how do we get more awareness, get credit for being in such a cool act, a place. And we launched uh, a metaverse co-experience. So it was, it was virtual and digital. And we brought metaverse into Coachella and we put Coachella into the metaverse. And we got 1.5 billion impressions of, of earned media. It wasn't about... Metaverse. It was about getting known for being part of Coachella. And we're modeling that right now to see if we got some impact from that, from from sales or even equity experience. So that's an example of a big surprise. The second surprise, you know, we, we are in a hospitality industry. And so it's really important to um, think about hospitality. And I, I guess I hadn't come from that mindset. So everything we do um, whether we're, it's with our customer or internal or um, when we do an activation, we, it's, it's the highest end possible. Like, how do you really, really take care of people? And that's really important in this industry. You can't, can't serve box lunches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean? like yeah. Hospitality is a different industry. So learning that, I would say there was a feeling that this is not packaged goods, but it's a it's not consumer packaged goods, it's, but it, there's a consumer, it's a good, it's packaged, but it's not consumer packaged goods. I was really trying to understand. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. This is more like fashion and luxury. And I do think some brands can go there. There are some really high-end cognacs and whiskeys that can really play a high-end luxury play, like a Gucci-type marketing. But we're talking Jameson and Absolute, like you know, we we can do beer-like marketing. We don't have to do luxury marketing. So mm-hmm. that, that's been a, a, a marketing mindset shift. And I think I've had to kind of come around to, you're right, it's not like sodas or snacks. There is an image component, and we see it in our data, by the way. The need to impress or the need yep. to stand out is much higher. So we do those impress and, and celebrate and uh, attributes are really important to our brand, so we have to focus on those. But um, I think, again, uh, the blending of both, I think, has has got us to the right place, but to be seen. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean, though, but consumer packaged goods has a weird image. People t- typically go right to Tide, 
and Dove and Lifebuoy and, you know, yeah. it has a, a kind of a mainstream grocery image. And, and honestly, consumer packaged goods is a way bigger thought than that. I agree. But it, you it know does, that. It does and have I baggage. Know that. It does have baggage. Yeah. <laughs> we, we know that, but yeah. a lot of people outside yeah. at CPG doesn't, yeah. don't really know that. Just walk the, the, the work at Cannes this year. You see several packaged goods and fast food doing amazing work. So it isn't category specific. It's doing great work. Fast food is a really creative category. And I think that's another podcast we should do. But there are a lot of reasons for that. But yeah, they're, they're ones to watch for what's new, what's next. I don't watch a lot of TV with ads anymore. But when I do, it is fast food. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Okay, let's shift into a chat about purpose. And you have a very high-minded purpose to create the moments that make life worth living. Well, that's kind of, you know, that's pretty deep. And I get a lot of questions about how a company purpose relates to each brand's purpose mm. in a multi-brand company. Mm. How, do you, how do you think about that at Pernod? Yeah, it definitely has to start there. If it's a disconnect with the company brand purpose, it's probably gonna really going to struggle to, to find an idea. So we do start with our company purpose, creators of conviviality. Um, it's really special being part of a French company. If you think about it, you know, individual rights, um, equality that, you know, that's really ingrained in their culture. And so, um, as we've amassed, as they've, um, amassed these brands, uh, we, we have gone through, it was the first thing I did my first year. What is each brand's DNA? What is each brand's timeless story and purpose? And how does that relate to our company mm-hmm. purpose? And from there, we, we jump off into, you know, how do we tell that timeless story in a timely way for today's culture in the U.S., which might be different than Europe. So um, to me, purpose for a brand isn't always altruistic or philanthropic. I mean, a brand's purpose could be just simply fun and mm-hmm. Malibu. It's all about summer mindset any time of the year. And that's actually really important. Today's young adults, the pressure they're under, uh, just starting out, even, you know, midlife adults, it's okay on the weekend to have that vacation summer mindset and have a Malibu martini or a Malibu pina colada. So that is a very important purpose. And you might even say it is kind of important to humanity, our mental health, right? So, but then you have other brands like Absolute who can't do that. That'd be too frivolous. Absolute has has an obligation actually to take on tougher uh, societal topics and they do and it can and we will. <laughs> and the reason is it was in its DNA? It is in its DNA. It's a Swedish company. Think about, again, equality, equity, um, it's born in Sweden. It's got 40 years history supporting the LGBTQ community. So it can't stop now. It's got to you know, go deeper, stronger, even more meaningful. So um, I think absolute, you know, people talk about, yeah, what, where did it go? Like, I remember those ads back in the 90s and then it just disappeared. I think it just through acquisitions and, the, and not knowing how, what the brand's DNA was, it's like, Absolute's always been in the zeitgeist of culture and it has to come back into that. And that's what we're trying to do. So it's it's different today than it was though in the nineties. You're speaking about a few of your brands that are 
that are doing this well, but could you maybe double down on a brand in your portfolio? I know there are many, but a brand that you think is exemplary at bringing your company purpose, connecting it to their brand purpose, and bringing it to life in a really, really high impact and a way that's driving their business. So we have several. I would say Glenlivet, Martell, Absolute, Jameson. I think Absolute's further along in the journey and is doing some incredible stuff. So uh, two years ago, uh, Absolute launched Sex Responsibly. And it was uh, it was on Valentine's Day. It's an instigation, instigation act, more of a PR stunt than a campaign, right? And it was all about the role of alcohol and consent during that Me Too time period. It was really culturally... Um, relevant. And it's, you can't have alcohol be an excuse for bad behavior. And so that was like unheard of, um, but it was right for absolute to do. And there was a series of other responsible uh, instigation acts right up to our last initiative, or it's not even our last, it's a ongoing evergreen initiative called Out and Open that we're so excited about. I think it's going to have many years of impact and brand building. And basically, we learned that uh, many gay bars have been closing during COVID faster. They were closing even before. And for many reasons, um, one of them was a lack of succession planning and just no one to turn them over. So famous gay bars in San Francisco closing, for example, no one to turn them over and you know keep them alive. So we partnered with the LGBTQ Chamber of Commerce started a fund, started a campaign called Out and Open. We're going to start, we're telling stories from the community, how important these these spaces are. And a year or two from now, I'm going to tell stories about how we've been able to keep some of these bars open and it, it'll be an evergreen effort. And again, that's impact and brand building. And, and Absolute has a, a very authentic and even obligation to be a part of. Um, so that's an example I'm really excited about, about and if you see our new campaign, Born to Mix, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's all about, it's, it's again, it, it, back to those Swedish roots of its purpose is to break the ice, which is to get the conversation started so that we can come together and embrace differences. And that is unlocking the magic of human connection. That is making our lives worth living. And that is a company purpose and a brand purpose that is really coming together. I urge our listeners to watch that video. You you kind of anthropomorphize a cocktail, right? Into a yes. person. It's, it's it's great fun to watch. It's great fun yes, to watch. We, we have six, that was a six day shoot. We have so much in the can. We I can't can wait to, yeah. to debut more cocktails. And um, we're excited about where that's going to go. Now you dropped a little term when you were talking about absolute, and that was instigation acts. And yeah. I love that concept. Mm-hmm. We often call it a symbolic act, right? Something that will mm. get a lot of attention that you're bringing your purpose to life in an activation that is meaningful. So could you tell us a little bit more about what you think about and mean when you see Instigation Act and how that's operationalized? We've done four, I think, with Absolute, and we've decided to take a step back while we launched Out and Open and really think thoroughly because some, I would say, were Instigation Acts and some weren't. And now we're like really trying to define what they are and how, how they fit the beats of our, our marketing calendar. And the idea is there's something probably very timely happening in culture. Where does Absolute have a right to have a voice? And then how does it show up? And authentically, not just uh, for the brand, but for whatever the issue is, right, to help solve a, an issue. I was so inspired at Can. I mean, uh, today's marketing is 
is, has to hit on multiple levels. Build the business, build the brand, build the equity, solve a business problem, solve a societal problem. Like that is the bar is hard very to high. Do, yeah. But brands are doing it. And so uh, I'm excited to say that is the bar. So how do we, how can we do it? And, um, you know, working very closely with Ogilvy, who's, who's been a fantastic partner, they've issued their white paper on impact over image. Like brands can't just be all about image anymore. And so we truly believe it. I love the challenge and instigation acts are a, a beat in our campaign that, that isn't necessarily planned for. It can be like we know Valentine's Day is coming up. We know there's an issue with sex responsibly and Me Too. That was a nice little um, flashpoint. The political situation, there's a new uh, vote, vote responsibly. Absolutely came out with vote first, drink second. You know, mm -hmm. funny play on um, timely situation. But again, saying something like this is an important vote get out and vote right vote first don't just sit back and have a cocktail like and watch the um, election come in so we will do more of that i think we're getting smarter at you know how and it, it's a very hard lift takes so many people comms agencies mm -hmm. legal um, media have to turn things on a dime it's not it's really rewarding, but it's really hard. And so... Um, That's why they're rare, right? Yes. Let's flip into the creative brief to end this wonderful discussion. The first question is, you were never allowed to have coloring books as a kid. <laughs> so tell us, tell us about the lasting impact of that on you. Oh, man. Well, the background is my dad's an artist and an art teacher, an art, more an art teacher than anything. And so he just raised us in a world where you make your own coloring books. So we would sit down and create our own coloring books. Not to say I didn't go over a friend's house and like sneak a coloring book, but the point was um, creativity is really important in our mm -hmm. household. Um, I think in kindergarten, I had to count how many paintings were on the wall and my teacher called, thought I was, I got something wrong. <laughs> no, that's true. Um, so I grew up in a household that went to art museums more than we went to the movies. And it was a great education. I, you know, to this day, my dad and I have long talks about art and art history and history in general. It's, it's been a great influence. I wanted to be, I went to arts. I was going to go to art school. I might still go to art school when I Why retire. Why not? Why not? <laughs> Why not? Um, but, um, you know, my dad's like, you are such a people person. You love being around people and, artist's life is a bit lonely and a, mm -hmm. a lot full of rejection. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of a people pleaser. So he's like, it, he knew, he knew me better to that. It would not be a great life for me. But when I found advertising, I'm like, this is like magic art plus people and business. And that's how I got into advertising. It was destiny. It was destiny. <laughs> so more about the Detroit area. Are you a car buff? I, well, I, worked in automotive uh, for the first 12, 13 years of my career. So we, we follow the car business. I still have a lot of friends in it. My brother-in-law's an engineer. I wouldn't say I'm a car collector. I like new cars. <laughs> what are you driving now? Um, I'm driving an Audi. I love, um, mm -hmm. I've had, I think it's my third one. Yeah, they're great. But I'm shopping right now, so I don't, I don't know. Are you a Detroit pizza buff? Uh, Little Caesars or <laughs> Pizza Pizza. Pizza Pizza. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and D Detroit style is square. It's so good. I have a son and daughter-in-law living in Detroit, and I just ah. love visiting for the pizza. 
Oh, that's very And the Coney's, and the Coney's, which is your Coney's. name for hot dogs. Yes. Every every Coney has Greek on the menu, yeah, you know. right, right. It's amazing. I love it. What's the biggest misconception people have about you? Oh, my gosh. You know, that was an interview question once. It was really? the hardest question. It really was. It is a good question. I it like is it. a good question. Um, I've had many people say, you're not like the typical leader. You're different. Like, I'm not an ego centric leader. I'm pretty mm-hmm. vulnerable. My team loves that about me. And the more I'm in, in a certain stage of my career, I just lean into it. So I, I explain when I'm not doing well, when I'm struggling, when I have anxiety about stuff that's coming up. I'm open with my direct reports and we work on it together. I would say that vulnerability, soft side of me might be misconstrued that I'm not competitive or that I'm not um, mm. ambitious. And that's not true. <laughs> um, I'm super competitive and ambitious. Yeah, I can tell. I can <laughs> tell. That was a good answer, actually. Mm. Very thoughtful. Because sometimes I would get that as well. Hey, you're a team builder. You're a nice guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. That doesn't mean I don't have super high expectations and I'm going to be there with the team driving it to the end. That's right. You started your career in advertising more or less, 13 years, four agencies. What's the best part of starting a career in advertising and the worst part? Uh, it's such so different today. Uh, you yeah. know, I have my sisters in an ad agency, um, so I'm still in touch with kind of what it's like. I've recruited a few people from the agency world who, by the way, 20-ish years into their career and had their first performance review in their career. That's an issue. So That's an issue. That yep. is a problem with agencies. Yep. They don't really do talent management and career conversations that you, if you want to grow your career, you have to jump an agency. That's really it. Um, that That's the worst part. The The best part is it's pretty fun. It's a young business. I mean, I started in the mailroom. I had to, do, had to for six weeks and then go on to traffic. And um, it's, it's a vibrant, talented place. But there's, it's eclectic, I'd say. You're going to see talent and wonder why they're still there, right? <laughs> but yeah. they actually have some brilliance in them. They're, they're not there because they're not producing. So I love being around agencies. I, I, I'm going to spend much more of my time there this next year um, because we can travel now and be in person. Um, teams was hard. But, you know, the mm-hmm. agency office space is just a great space to go to. Um, it's great if you get to be on shoots and travel. But I would say most people get to a point in their career where they're like, okay, now what do I want to do? I, I know more people who've left the agency business than are still in it, right? Um, it's tough to stay. I'd say it's a tough business to be in right now. Yeah, sure Specialists is. Specialists and it's tough. We're ending this interview and looking toward cocktail hour in a bit. So what do you recommend I try tonight during Ooh. cocktail hour that I might not have tried? Well, if you could go to the store. I could. Do you drink whiskey? I do. Mm. I do. I mean, I live in Cincinnati, which is on the doorstep of bourbon country. So it's hard okay, not to. Okay. Our, our baseball park doesn't have a beer hall. It has a bourbon hall. <laughs> That's funny. Well, yeah. I was going to recommend a um, beautiful Irish whiskey. Uh, if you've ever had Red Breast. I have not. So you can even Google some of the, the content we've done. It's very cute um, work. But it's it's an Irish whiskey. Different age levels statements. But a, mm-hmm. a Red Breast 27 is amazing. For if you like tequila, we have the brand Avion. 
Avion, uh, we just came out with a Cristalino. And uh, there's a few Cristalinos out there. I don't know if you know what Cristalinos are, but it's an aged Añejo, but it's been charcoal filtered to be clear. So it's a clear aged tequila. Lovely. And so serve that on the rocks, cold. I think it's like white wine and red wine. I like my Añejo warm. I like my Cristalino cold. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one. Um, And you've got to pick up some Jameson Orange. Just play with it. Yeah, I have all sorts of ideas. <laughs> I have a few cocktail hours ahead of me. It's like, and we're, we're recording on Monday, so I have all week to think about this. All right. So, Pam, thank you for this. Thank you. This was fun. It was a wonderful gift. And as I said up front, I had a, a great time researching mm-hmm. you and the, the topics that you speak about. And I just think this conversation has been uh, inspiring, but also very edifying for anyone trying to make a mark as a CMO. So thank you for your generosity and the, and the gift of this conversation. I thank you. I'm flattered you uh, invited me. It's lovely. That was my conversation with Pam Forbes. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one, this was a fantastic lesson on managing a modern marketing organization and managing a portfolio of many brands. Pam went through how she and her team think about managing the portfolio What are the skills and capabilities for a modern marketing organization? And who does what work to get the brands to grow? This was a wonderful lesson for all of you CMOs out there trying to build a great organization. Second takeaway, what it's like to build a consumer-centric culture. We all like to say we're customer or consumer-centric. What Pam says, unless you're making your decisions day in and day out, hour by hour on consumer data, you're not really a consumer-centric culture. So think about that. Third takeaway, This was a masterclass as well in career planning. This is a wonderful conversation about not being afraid of politics, to being clear about what you want, to communicate more, to build relationships. This was a really, really nice discussion for everyone about managing a successful, happy, and fulfilling career. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.